Hi, it's Gillian here from Irish Funds. Today, we are bringing you the next episode in our series of recordings from the Irish Funds 10th Annual UK Symposium, which took place on November 30th in London. This episode features the panel discussion entitled The Future of ETFs, which is moderated by Tom Eckett of ETF Stream and features Isabel Mosler-Culpin of 21 Shares, Michael John Lytle of Taboola Investment Management, Paul Young of Vanguard, and Martin Bednall of Jacoby Asset Management. The panel discusses the investment needs of the next generation of investors, focusing on ETFs versus mutual funds and the factors influencing these choices. The panel also discusses the potential for incentivizing ETF investments in Europe and the comparisons between EU and US regulatory approaches. We hope you enjoyed this episode and be sure to keep an eye out for further podcasts from the UK Symposium coming soon. Right, I reckon we, um, let's dive, try and dive straight into it. Um, appreciate it, people are filing out right now, but um, we're going to be talking about the future of ETFs. So, pretty broad topic for 35 minutes, so we've got our work cut out a little bit here, but um, we'll try and cover a whole range of issues with market structure, regulation, touch a little bit on crypto and digital assets as well. Um, and I'm delighted to say we have four um, fantastic speakers with us today. So, Isabel Mosler, Global Head of Distribution at 21 Shares. Um, NJ Lytle, CEO of Tabula Investment Management, uh, Paul Young, Head of ETF Capital Markets for Europe at Vanguard, and Martin Bednall, CEO of Jacoby Asset Management. Um, and I probably should have introduced myself as well. I'm Tom Eckett, I'm the editor of ETF Stream, and what we're doing is really covering the, um, the use of ETF market. Um, so yeah, let's sort of dive straight into it. Obviously, we've seen huge growth over the past kind of two decades. Um, Martin, maybe coming to you first, what have you made of this growth? And, yeah, what do you see as really kind of the future of ETFs in Europe? Well, I think the growth has been phenomenal, and that's over the last 10, 20, 20 years. I've been involved in ETFs for about 15 years now. And, uh, you know, the growth will just continue to happen. Uh, and it, it's driven by both retail and, and institution. Um, so, and what we're seeing is more and more people who have stood on the sidelines and not done ETFs and have... have thought that they're not the, the, the vehicle that they want to, to provide to their investors, they're now coming here. So active management and active ETFs uh, are, are going to happen more and more. And, and, you know, ETFs are just proving time and time again that they're the, the best vehicle for, for e either retail or institution to, to get access to, to whatever sort of theme, asset class that, uh, that they're interested in investing in. So do you reckon the only way is up for the market then? Yeah, at the moment, uh, I don't see... I think one of the topics we'll come on to is tokenization, and I think that is potentially, uh, you know, a challenger, but mm. that's got... That, that's only going to happen, you know, way in, way in the distant future, I think. Yeah, good stuff. Isabel, what's your, what's your sort of take on that, on the sort of growth of the market over the last two decades and kind of where, where, you, see it, where you see it growing in Europe? I think this is true for all of us here. We've been involved for such a long time, and sometimes you have the feeling, finally, the message gets home because... Um, I don't know if any of you have seen the, um, the recent Pharma report and then highlighting and the benefits and the growth and what are all of the points and, and all of the asset classes you can access. And it, it just shows how long it takes to adopt, to change existing structures. But no, I'm, I'm definitely um, with Martin. 
there's huge potential still if you look at even just the European funds industry and I mean of course you we, we have the the perfect audience here you know this better than than we do but it really is it's it's a wrapper it's a, a solution we can provide um, for different audiences and there is still a lot of potential so this is really um, an area that will remain in focus, that will certainly shift and, and evolve. Mm. But um, yeah, I'm equally equally optimistic, even though sometimes I must say, it's like, really, are we still talking about this? But um, <laughs> well, we're, we're, we'll stick with it. We're, we're still all here. Good stuff. And yeah, MJ, what's your what's your take on that on that question around the growth? How are you seeing things? Yeah, look, very similar to Isabel. In the in the historical context, you know, we seem to be keep. Everybody asks the same questions again and again, and you start to think, God, is this record broken? Um, I, I think the real, you know, we're into these debates that come back and forth between active and passive and ETF versus traditional usage funds and whether you use a traded entry point or a direct access to a fund. I don't really think that's what we're talking about, right? So I think we're mainly talking about collective investments how to regulate them and how to distribute them. Um, I think the, the concept of whether they should be executed by a traded process, exchange traded, OTC traded, whatever, where the investor is buying a unit that exists, or whether you directly access the fund and all of the different fund platforms that have been created over the decades to make that process simpler, that's not the big issue. I think the thing that we've established in the last five or so years is um, setting the bar higher on information, what's available. I think it's super frustrating to investors not to know, like if they want to buy Asian investment grade, what are their options? You know, who offers funds? What do those funds look like? How do I compare them to each other? Do I have to pay for an external service in order just to understand the, the products that are already in the space that I can buy? I think what the ETF industry has tried to do is say, Let's set that bar higher. Let's put information out there on the web into databases that's available on a daily basis with daily navs and daily prices, just so that we can get some sort of clarity for people as to what's available to them. The, the concept that a, that a collective investment needs to be in a certain structure beyond usage, I think, is, is a false distinction. I think we're going to end up with usage funds that have traded share classes and untraded share classes. I mean, already we're doing that. A number of the issuers are doing that. Untraded share classes for people who just don't have a brokerage account, who want to trade directly with the uh, asset manager, and traded share classes for people who want to get them on exchange through, through, through accounts. So um, I think what we're really doing is we're kind of opening up our minds to what are the benefits to people of owning collective investments and what's the best way of doing that, having good information and strong regulatory environment around it. MJ, I was going to ask you about that sort of unlisted and listed share classes later, but now you mention it, let's dive into it. Um, just quickly, you, you obviously mentioned your firm's taking advantage of that. Could you talk a little bit about that structure and just why, why you've chosen to do that? Yeah, well, I, I have a man here who used to own the patent on that, so uh, I'll, I'll hand it to Paul in a second. But um, the look, listed, unlisted has been a false distinction. I think in 2012, when I was at Source, we did unlisted share classes on Ashmore traditional, uh, sorry, listed share classes on Ashmore traditional funds, just to prove that you know th this is a, a more than 10-year-old concept. And and I think there are some concerns that regulators have as to how the 
uh, traditional USITS investor accesses the fund and at what price versus the creation redemption process that's used on ETFs to make sure that one is not advantaged versus the other. In, in, the, in the traditional fund space, we've had swing pricing for a long time, but we've had this idea that you don't swing unless the trade is big and it will have a meaningful impact on the economics of the fund. I think that's a false distinction. I think we should basically have swing pricing on everything because we shouldn't care how many people access the fund. If we're a long-term investor in the fund, we should get good tracking versus the strategy that's there. Um, and the idea that, that a traded uh, share class, whether you, whether you trade it on exchange, and everybody's talking about uh, consolidated tapes. They've been talking about consolidated tapes for over a decade. It's wonderful that we're actually finally making progress in the space, but it doesn't mean a seismic shift in where we are. Um, we still have the issue that the amount of activity on exchange compared to OTC is still not swung in the favor of all of the exchanges, all 27 or whatever that have ETFs. Um, so, you know, I think it's really important that you keep asking the question. Uh, I think it's really important as asset managers that we think very carefully about the entry and exit of our funds and that we don't disadvantage long-term holders of the funds versus people who trade in and out because you, know, you want people to trade your funds as well as hold for years. Um, but I think the actual mechanism you know, is down to the, the investor and what, what technology do they have, right? I mean, uh, retail investors in the UK um, often don't have easy access to a trading platform for ETFs, um, and they, they trade for, over a fund platform, so. Yeah, and worth, it's worth adding there's a bit of divergence between Luxembourg at the moment and Ireland, where on Ireland you have to rename your fund a subfund an ETF, whereas in Luxembourg you don't have to do that, you can label it a fund. Um, so it's worth just sort of highlighting that discrepancy there for asset managers. Paul, what's your, what's your take on kind of the dri uh, what's, what's driving kind of the growth of ETFs in Europe from the kind of van Vanguard perspective? Um, well, yeah, I mean, there's been some reflection on the growth over decades, and I think, um, you know, the, the, prompt, the, the dominant drivers of that have been to do with cost and the ability to, to access broad beta at low cost, and that's continued over the years. And I think if you look at the, the flow patterns this year in Europe, it's still continued to be the case. You have a lot more product choice, um, but when you look at the flow patterns, core equity and uh, is the, still the dominant uh, asset class that, that is, is driving the growth. I think where you see the opportunities is in other asset classes like fixed income in particular that doesn't have a high uptake, particularly at the retail end of the, mm. the spectrum, starting to, to grow faster uh, at a faster clip than, than some of the equities in particular. So, um, yeah, I think there's nothing new in terms of the, the growth patterns, say, for a year or two over the last uh, 10, 20 years, where you've had a lot of volatility and some, and some drawbacks. Mm. I think uh, the growth will continue along those themes. And obviously, last couple of years in particular, we've seen the huge rise of kind of retail adoption with ETF savings plans in Germany, and they're starting to get rolled out across the rest of Europe. Um, yeah, what's your take on that? Obviously, that's a big positioning for Vanguard, um, but what have you made that kind of rise of return? Is that, is that here to stay? Well, the question for us is not who are we trying to target. Retail is <coughs> essentially our end, end target audience for, for the product set that we have. The long-term investor is, mm -hmm. is what we're there for. Um, the question for us is how do those retail investors access the product? 
And yes, there's a lot of noise around new platforms coming. I think that's entirely positive. It's lowering the cost of access for retail investors, particularly that want to access the products directly, maybe without advice or through other, you know, through their own mechanisms um, or investment decisions. I think um, what we're still seeing in Europe is that that market is still heavily intermediated. So, you know, by far the, the most uh, popular way to access the product is through a, a platform or a, a larger intermediary that's probably giving them advice or access to model portfolios or different strategies to alongside that. So I think ultimately for us, we want to be providing the product set. We want to be partnering with the, with the industry to make access easier and cheaper and that will continue to, to drive the growth in the future. Direct-to-consumer direct offerings are going to grow, but I think they're still very small and nascent. Yeah. Isn't it today that Robinhood announced they're going to enter the, the UK market? And what we'll see, and, and maybe just uh, from, from our perspective, so with, with 21 shares and given this is a very niche area, um, and we specialize just on, on ETFs on, on crypto, um, it's been the other way around almost, whereas for, for the traditional asset classes and the, the growth we've been talking about, that's really been driven from institutional investors, into institutional size. Like you said, MJ, very much OTC, even though they're called exchange traded. What we've seen there is that it was almost for us, the demand was bottom up. So the demand that was really retail and now the institutional players are coming in. Um, in many cases, it is a self-directed investor. It is somebody who would like to access the asset class, but um, by a regulated vehicle. Um, but it's, it's been interesting because so from my background, also coming from traditional finance, to see that driver where you really have that bottom-up demand and um, just different connections. Again, for us, we're a small firm. It's not possible to mm. sort of go directly to the consumer. So the, the different platforms are, are very much... Um, the partners we're working with. But um, yeah, I think going forward, people will get more savvy or you know, maybe it's a generational shift where people say, no, I, I, I know how to do this online. I can do all of this on my phone. Why would I want to discuss this with a financial advisor? But you know, it's also, we, we'll have to see because sometimes I also think it's not gonna go all that way. Not everybody is that interested. I mean, we should all take care of our finances, but. I don't think everybody wants to be their own bank, even though that's kind of a thing in crypto, but I, I, I don't subscribe to that. I, mean, I think that, that is a positive trend that we're seeing in the, in the ETF space. Is, you know, anyone in the room today, could, right now, could pull out their phone and mm -hmm. buy an ETF um, while we're talking. And that's changing the, the, the kind of edu the education side of things. You, know, you talked about 10, 20 years, we were constantly having to re-explain the mecha mechanics of an ETF what's different about it now, I think they're just becoming part of the, the furniture and people understand the benefits of them. But, but I think the, the big thing that we're not talking about is the daily liquidity. Uh, not only the trading liquidity, but the, the fund liquidity. So I, I think there's a huge distinction between funds that have daily liquidity and everything else. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, whether you access that liquidity through a traded mechanism or you access it by directly going to the fund, the liquidity of the underlying assets which allow the manager to provide daily liquidity for investors is absolutely vital. Because I think um, 
when we have locked-in vehicles, we're talking about a very different investment horizon. I mean, we may believe that people should buy and put it away for 10 years, but if by chance they need some money for some purpose that they hadn't expected, um, that daily liquidity is very important. And again, I, I don't think it's about whether it's traded or whether you directly access the fund, but it's the, the, the effectiveness of the liquidity mechanism and the fact that it's always there. Well, yeah. I mean, that for me is the, the secret source of the ETF, really. Like people talk about, well, if you only have long-term investors, you don't get the daily turnover, but actually the product is fit for the whole spectrum. Mm. Institution yeah. investors use the product for different reasons, more tactical short-term uh, reasons. Uh, actually is additive to, to the liquidity, drives down cost, and makes it cheaper for the long-term investor as well. So there's room for, for both in ETF. Yeah, good stuff. And let's move on to market structure. And if anyone does have any, have any questions, I'm sure we'll leave a few minutes at the end. Um, just talking about T plus one, Paul. Um, obviously, the US is moving over to a T plus one structure in, in May. Um, Europe's pretty long way behind, to be fair to say. What, what, what do you make of this? Um, it's a pretty live topic right now, and what do you make of the impacts that a move to T plus one could have on USIS ETFs? Uh, well, they will have an impact. I mean, the, the first thing to say, it's great news that settlement periods are compressing globally. I mean, that is good for investors. Um, the other thing to say is there's always been misalignment between the underlying assets in the funds and the ETF itself. So that's something that the, the market and the, the industry has been very good at navigating over the years. What's different is obviously it's the US. And so, you know, being well over 50% of the market cap of the global equity basket, it's going to be a, you know, a dominant driver within, within the portfolio. And therefore, you're just going to have a lot more misalignment. And so the impact on investors ultimately will be a cost impact potentially. Um, because either the fund or the market participants are going to have to absorb some funding costs to make sure that, that the cash flows match up um, because Europe is not moving from T2 mm. and you'll have underlying settlements happening on a T1 basis. So, you know, the secondary impact or well, another impact and potentially more important for the industry is, you know, USITS has a rules around how much cash you can have in the portfolio. And so if this misalignment drives high cash positions in portfolios, you could have potential usage breaches. But they're, but they're okay for short-term settlement purposes. Well, so that's, and, that's and what I was going to say is the industry is debating and discussing this. There is not a coherent single answer to that because it depends on your service provider, the depots, and their view on how they will allow you to manage your portfolio. So, you know, I think the farmer put out a good paper on this to try and get um, a single voice alignment on how that's treated. But ultimately, someone's going to have to pay for either the high fun funding cost, the cash position, yeah. or um, an overdraft, potentially, depending on the direction. So, you know, that could bleed into the potential trading costs for the ETF. Yeah, I mean, misal misalignment in, in settlement periods just, just makes it much harder to, to manage the portfolios. It, yeah. That's not specific to... To ETFs, that's specific to anybody running sort of multi-currency portfolios where you've got you know the dollar, dollars involved. Um, there's a there's a challenge out there for the for the custodians and admins that they need to provide the, the funds credit and and you know that's sometimes an issue when you trade and and you know one part of the bank isn't aligned with the other and and you, they won't settle trades because you haven't got the cash there. Well, and 
well, what are we going to do, right? If, if we've got to settle US trades and, mm. and, and European trades on, a, on different uh, settlement periods and we've got FX in there, that's just confusing things. So it, it creates challenges, um, complexities, and ultimately costs and yeah. you know, who wears the costs. Um, uh, ETFs are priced, you know, many ETFs are priced very, very low. Total expense ratios, there's not a huge amount of margin in there to, to, for, for the providers to absorb costs. So it ultimately is likely to come back to, to the investors, unfortunately. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, what about on, just on T plus one specifically, obviously the UK's going to move pr probably sooner than the EU will. Um, how important is that alignment there and that harmonization between the UK and the EU, more importantly, almost than the, than the US? Well, I think I probably speak for most to say, well, we hope there isn't going to be too much misalignment there. I mean, the more harmonization you have, the better. I mean, I'm not aware of a specific date that the UK will be moving versus the EU. Um, you would hope that it would move uh, in lockstep, but, um, you know, that's maybe a victory for hope over experience, but you know, you know that that will be much better if you can have uh, everything moving at the same time. Yeah, interesting. MJ's just sort of talking about the UK versus sort of EU and that harmonisation there. And I know we were talking before this around kind of hate to use the word Brexit, but the impact on use of ETFs. Could you touch a little bit on that and how that's kind of impacted the? ETF market. So this becomes my opportunity to make friends and influence people uh, by highlighting that the UK getting out of step with Europe is to nobody's benefit. So I know that the whole point um, around Brexit was this idea that we could create Singapore on the Thames, uh, but unfortunately that's not how value will be created in Europe. Um, and the reality of the funds industry is that um, the larger the investable amounts that are available to fund managers, the more efficient they can be in running their operations. And as Martin just highlighted, we're trying to run funds with very low TERs, ever, ever lower TERs. And so it really matters what it costs to run a fund. And if you have to run fund structures where you can only access small national um, uh, pools of assets, it's going to cost you fundamentally more to run those funds if you have to run them in a disaggregated way than if you can create one structure and sell it to four or five hundred uh, million people and access, you know, 13 trillion of, of assets. So I think we've already seen some issues between the UK and the US, uh, and, and Ireland usage <clears throat> with the new funds that were created post-Brexit, uh, trying to get access to the UK market, the 272 uh, regulations, which have cost people a huge amount of money in trying to file documents and never actually gaining access, which is just a scandal. Uh, but now there's an idea that we're going to cross another rubric where um, we're going to um, have a new uh, set of guidelines around how that's going to work. Uh, fundamentally, I just think people should put down their pencils and look at each other and say, what are we trying to achieve here? And if the UK thinks that it's going to create some regime that's separate from Europe and that's somehow going to benefit um, either UK domestic investors or financial services in the UK, they've got both of those wrong. Right? The first, for the investors, they're going to only get what's available to a relatively small part of the overall pie if they cut out the, the UK. And from a manager's perspective, if they say, you have to set up a different structure to access people in the UK versus the rest of Europe, you know what that's going to do. It ultimately leads to higher costs, and therefore, that has to get passed on. If you, there's not a lot of margin in this industry, ultimately, people have to pass things on. So. Um, 
I hope, and, and going back um, to you know, Paul's point, I hope that sense will be seen and people will start to realize that um, creating a bunch of uh, parallel rules and competing rules and so on ultimately might feel good at the time, uh, but it's not going to produce the best outcome for everybody in the room. And, and, I, and I think yeah. the burden is much harder for smaller asset managers than larger ones as well. So having multiple different regulations, you know, whether it's SFDR or SDR or, you know, just the, the higher cost burden of managing compliance rules, um, it, it, we just don't, you know, as a smaller manager, we yeah. just don't have either the amount of money, the amount of people, bandwidth compared to the, to the vanguards uh, of this world. And, and that's, that's not good, right? That's not good for the industry where you just end up with which is just a bunch of large asset managers. That's not good for innovation. It's not good for choice for the investors. So, um, you, know, regula you know, regulations and when they come through, they just, they're, they're there for a reason, but it just makes life sometimes too hard than it should be for the benefit that the regulation is, is, is giving, particularly for, for smaller asset managers. What do you make of competition in the ETF market in Europe specifically at the moment? And do you think, do you see, do you see the bigger guys just simply getting bigger? Yeah, they will be, they will be, yeah, <laughs> they'll get bigger. I think, I think um, hopefully everybody gets bigger. Um, is the share um, of, for the larger managers, you know, going to, to increase? Quite po possibly, there'll be more consolidation in the industry going forward. Um, yeah, as a, as a, as a smaller ETF provider, it is not easy to compete. You know, you, you can't compete on price. Uh, you can't compete on distribution. So you can compete on, on products, you know, so MJ is competing um, there from, from a fixed income perspective. We're, we're, we're there from, from a sort of digital asset perspective or, you know, different markets. So, I, you know, I run a business that, that sold ETFs into Russia and, and that business got destroyed um, by, by a certain individual. Um, so... Uh, not destroyed, actually. It's still there. Oh, that was the wrong terminology, but it, it got massively impacted. Um, and so, you know, so it isn't a level playing field, and, and you know, the regulators, uh, um, you know, and, the, and some of the industry participants, you know, really could help the, uh, the smaller guys out. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I, I think it's yeah, worth on, drawing on that. I mean, I, I think an industry is as healthy as the entrepreneurial end of that industry, right? It, it's not good for anybody if you squash and, and take the oxygen out of the room for the entrepreneurial end of the industry, not because the small player is necessarily going to become the behemoth, but, but the small player is able to introduce new concepts, new angles um, that just don't make sense to a big player, um, but can have quite a big shift over time uh, in, in what's available, uh, in what's addressed, in what's, um, what's actually innovated and created. Uh, so I, I think we need to be super careful about making sure that we have a healthy entrepreneurial environment in the asset management industry. Uh, and if we end up with a situation where it's just not economically viable uh, or regulation is so onerous that it is impossible <coughs> to create things uh, from scratch, I think we're going to end up with a problem. Yeah, interesting. Tom. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, just to follow up from that, I think... You know, I don't know if we're going to talk about the opportunity set for, for USITs and the European ETP industry. One of the really exciting things is about the, the wider range of uh, array of investor preferences that we're serving. 
not just within Europe, but beyond Europe's yeah. borders, right? So the, at the moment, USITS is about four times, US is about four times bigger than, than USITS in terms of AUM. But I don't think that's a reflection of the long-term future of USITS. And I think it could quickly catch up if, you know, we can get the, the, the structure right for the for market structure within Europe to facilitate that growth. Um, but the wider range of uh, investor preferences does allow for more competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot more less concentration in the U European marketplace at the, at, in terms of asset pools than you, than you see in the US. And I think that's a reflection of it. That's what makes it so exciting. Sorry, we, yeah. we keep mentioning USITs and, and actually um, the ETFs exist, so I, I run three alternative investment fund ETFs, so it's not just USITs in Europe, uh, and you know, Isabel has, you know, has ETNs, so the, 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 the industry isn't just USITs, we keep commenting as, as it's USITs, but it's not, it's broader, right? The exchange traded product set is broader than just USITs. Yes. No, but it, it's, it's also though worth highlighting that the whether it's USITs or alternative USITs or ETNs built around that industry, those are basically able to be sold in almost all the world except for the US. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not Australia, and there's some challenges in Canada. But we're, you know, out of 200 and something countries, it, it's, a, it's a unified uh, investment approach that works almost everywhere. We have a Chinese asset manager that we work with as a partner, and their latest um, Asian IG product, they chose, instead of creating an Asian structure that they knew they could sell all around Asia, they wanted to set it up as a USITS mm -hmm. and then get it approved by the Hong Kong regulator to be able to sell it in the rest of Asia because it gave them a much bigger distribution footprint. And I think that, sorry to interrupt, but I, I think that really goes to show of what clarity in terms of regulation does because that USITS designation is, is seen as a sort of sign of quality mm. and of okay you know what the rules are you know you know what what's sort of included and yeah absolutely echo that so in in asia latin america same um people want to access that pool and we should we should take that as an opportunity and, and that's been a huge shift in latin america over mm. the last 10 years so 10 years ago the latin americans all wanted to buy sec registered yeah. product and now they all want to buy usance mm. right yeah. um for a variety of reasons, including the fact that they found the SEC difficult to deal with, um, and they didn't like the U.S. Tax, re tax regime. So, you know, that's a huge opportunity for our industry to be able to sell product across the whole world, right? Yep. Yeah, good stuff. Isabel, I'm sorry, Martin, for mentioning USITs again, but um, <laughs> just in terms of, you obviously got diversified commodity USITs ETFs. Do you think, you know, looking at the future of ETFs here, there'll be a place for kind of crypto within that kind of, if it's a diversified enough basket, do you think we'll see crypto within USITs? I really hope so, and uh, I'm not sure if there's any of the um, Irish regulators here would love to um, continue our conversation because, to be honest, you, you do have um, the opportunity or right now the possibility, like we could structure a usage fund, it would tick the boxes of all the diversification rules, it's possible, but then it needs to be accepted that digital assets and, and crypto and all the underlying is is seen as eligible, but I really hope we get there as sort of the, this area of, of the market grows. Um, 
that there's a lot of evolution, there's a lot of things in, in play, but I think over time, for sure, because um, I remember, and you, you had the same with exchange-traded commodities, mm -hmm. all of the discussions, and is this a thing, and can we really do it, and all of a sudden, you, you have a number of, of usage funds covering that exactly that asset class. So I think it's, it's a learning process, I think it really is an evolution, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I would be, but I'm very positive <laughs> that it'll happen. Because, uh, Martin, quickly on sort of tokenization that you mentioned earlier, do you think ETF tokenization is ex an exciting part of the industry? What's your, what's your take on that one? Uh, well, so tokenization itself, you know, has the potential to have a profound impact on, on the financial services uh, business, um, you know, from, a, from a, a fund perspective, from a distribution perspective, from a compliance perspective, you know, it... it could be exceed, you know, like it's it's going to be huge. How long it takes is going to be, an you know, a big factor. I think the proof of concepts that have been done so far have all been done on private blockchains. Um, that needs to move to public blockchains, and, and there's huge questions around um, sort of interoperability of that because you want it to be a market mechanism. Mm -hmm. Like tokenization, you know, you can have one one fund that you manage and distribute it globally, right, through, through, um, through tokenizing it. Um, and so that can cut down costs massively for, for big organizations. Um, uh, but, you know, the whole market needs to come together, you know, to agree on what technology solutions there. But then I think the bigger factor there is the regulatory side of things, right? Reg you know, can regulators, it, it, was, it was good to hear uh, Derval uh, talking earlier about convergence of, of regulators, mm. and, and that really does need to happen for for tokenization and to, to get the full power and, and um, sort of uh, of the tokenize the ability to tokenize um, funds. And that's funds. It's not just ETFs. Yeah. I mean, ETFs. I think there's a lot of conversations about tokenization in ETFs because ETF providers tend to be the most forward-thinking, in in my opinion. Um, but actually, there's probably other you know, private assets, real estate, that will get more benefit out of um, out of tokenization initially than 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 ETFs. ETFs are, are a form of tokenization themselves anyway. It's That's exactly what I think. Sometimes when we think about, you know, does it make sense in the ETF space, or is that just putting another wrapper on a wrapper? Mm. It, you know, is is that really the place where we should start, or should we go and and further down the route of illiquid assets and? <coughs> But on, I, I agree with what you said, Martin, in, in terms of um, you know, where, where is this going, what are the solutions, and when we speak about partners, because so one part of the business is um, ETFs, but the other one is, is um, working on the tokenization front, but the first question we ask to potential partners is, what are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to tokenize? Such a buzzword, and everybody understands something different. You know, is it real-world assets? Is it what are you trying to do? Is it accessing new um, investors via a different route, not via regulated exchanges, but maybe via decentralized exchanges? Or you have on-chain asset managers that need a wrap token, which is something we we did recently. But um, it it really we need to be clear, what are we talking about, what are we, and, and why are we doing it? It's, it's no point in, oh, I'm going to tokenize a, a money market fund, yeah, and then what? What are you going to do with it? it? It's possible, but, you know, to, to what is the real objective here? And sadly, we have run out of time, but just before we end, it would just be great to everyone's, get everyone's kind of one or two word answer to kind of what would be your silver bullet to change about the European ETF market. Uh, Martin, maybe starting with you and going along. Um, it would be... 
good if we had one exchange in Europe where all all the funds, all the ETFs were traded. So we can, just one we can centralized dream, we can liquidity pool. Yeah. <laughs> Controversial. Mm. <laughs> I don't, well, um, I don't think that's going to happen, but... Uh, he asked for a silver bullet. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very true. My silver that's bullet, right. I'm, I'm going to go broader than just the ETF industry, and I'll stick with the, um, the financial literacy area and, and sort of in improving that, really having people understand, um, asking a lot of questions, because this also keeps us innovating. This really keeps us on your toes if we get pushed and questions asked, and can you do this, can you do that? But in order to do that, I think we need a bit more on the educational front and, and just understanding. Good stuff. MJ, one or two words very quickly. I think harmonization of, of regulation. So, you know, ESMA hands down um, their thoughts in a very big picture way. It's then left to various um, jurisdictions to interpret. I think that there has been a move towards uh, synchronized interpretation as opposed to competitive interpretation, which I think is a great thing. Um, but I think we need to take it further and we need to be able to have those conversations quickly and in real time as opposed to having huge time elapse uh, where it takes months, if not years, to tackle questions around what's eligible for funds, um, how to address them if there's something that needs to be changed in the way you value different assets and funds, how you assure liquidity. I think these things should be able to be tackled quickly. And Paul, very, very quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said two words. Um, the, the interoperability that was talked about in the regulatory panel is very interesting. It's not just about having one exchange, but if you can streamline the whole market structure and have proper competition at the exchange level, not just pockets within national borders. Um, that will drive more pickup globally for the use of brand, ETF brand. It will also increase retail participation. I think that's a good point to end on. Um, I want to say a massive thank you to our four panelists. That was a bit of a whistle-stop tour, but if everyone could put their hands together. Thank you very much, guys. <laughs>